Man, I cannot believe we are already coming up on the fourth Sunday of Lent. Uh, Triduum is very much in our sights. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people think, you know, Christmas, what a time for music directors. But really, this, the, the, um, the push for Lent toward Easter is, is really the time that things start to get crazy. Boy, I know what you mean. I mean, not only do we have Triduum, but then when you think about all the other things happening in a parish with reconciliation services and any special speakers or spiritual development opportunities, even fish fries. And then because this is spring, you know, we fill our the rest of our lives with other things. Um, sometimes I really feel like maybe we do this to ourselves and, and maybe this is this is uh, one particular way of feeling the penance of the season. I know. And of course, you and I, Matt, um, have a lot of things going on that seem to all have just piled on at like exactly the same time. Oh, I know. When I said people do it to themselves, I was talking about us. <laughs> that was an admission of guilt. I wasn't talking about other people. You know, you, you and I are yeah. the worst offenders well, no. at this, I think. You know, d- just take a look, for example, at our next 10 calendar days, you know, and the number of things that we have coming up. Um, first, uh, we have L.A. Congress. We'll be at L.A. Congress this year doing a couple sessions. Yeah, I am super excited. So um, for anyone who is going to be at L.A. Congress uh, on f- Friday afternoon uh, during lunchtime, uh, I'll be uh, presenting a concert with David Haas. And then on Sunday, uh, David and I will be presenting a, a more um, extensive uh, workshop together. Uh, that's the Sunday morning breakout session. So I hope we'll see you there. And then next, while we are in L.A. for Congress, the application period for our new summer program, the One Call Institute, will close. So that happens on March 15th of this week. So anybody who's listening, who's thinking about attending, make sure you get your applications in because that deadline is coming fast. Yeah, and we are so excited. I mean, we have kids coming from all over the country now. Uh, so make sure to get your applications in because I think, you know, this is really, it's, it's got legs and, uh, we're, uh, we're excited to see where it goes. And then shameless plug. The other thing we have going on is the new ministry Monday podcast that we produce for NPM. So as the name suggests, this is a weekly podcast that comes out on Mondays and covers all sorts of topics related to uh, ministry. And we have some wonderful guests, Paul Turner, Kathy Harmon, Diana McElintal. Uh, so that's been really fun, but a lot of work also. Matt has done a tremendous job with uh, the Ministry Monday podcast. If you haven't listened to them yet, uh, make sure to do that. Um you know, I've I've gotten to listen to them, and I've I've found them to just be very helpful, very thought provoking. Um, for anyone in liturgical ministry, I think you know some of the topics are more focused towards music directors, but it really gets us thinking about um, our tool set as liturgical leaders, and I think it's just a it's a great shot in the arm for for people as we are you know, deep in the trenches uh, as we prepare for Easter. Well, thanks for that, Zach. That's very kind. Um, It's been a really fun project working on Ministry Monday. And, you know, already what I've learned from that and, and from this podcast, too, in the almost year that we've been producing things is how important the liturgy is to people, how important this music is to people. And and these 
projects that we're doing and these stories that we're telling um, not only have informed people by maybe providing information they didn't know, but also has really been informing people's prayer. It's been been fun to hear from listeners as they've they've told us their stories. And I think that just goes to show that in busy times like this, it it tells us and reminds us what we're doing this for and why it's worth it. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Matt. I know that during this time of year, I tend to get buried in the work and distracted by the tasks that need to be done. And I think it's important to be reminded that, you know, at the core of our ministry, at the center of our ministry, is bringing people, bringing ourselves into a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. And even though we recorded this interview with Paul Inwood back in Cincinnati at the NPM convention, uh, it just seems really appropriate now uh, to be talking about this song. So please open your hymnal to Center of My Life. My name is Paul Inwood. I'm a freelance liturgist and music consultant. Uh, I live just outside Portsmouth in the south of England. It's, uh, it, it's a song that pe- people say to me, I love your music, and, and they're talking about Center of My Life, and I say to them, well, I didn't write it, and then their jaws drop, and then I, then I tell them the story of how it came to be, and then they start to, to see it a little differently. Um, a friend of mine in uh, April 1984, um, uh, who was a seminarian, said, I'm going to be ordained in February 1985. Uh, would you write the responsorial psalm for my ordination? And I said yes, and he said, um, this, this was directly after Easter, and uh, he said, this is a psalm I would like, I think it comes on, on Easter Monday, in fact, um, it's Psalm 15, 16, depending on which numbering you use. And he said, uh, the, the psalm is fine, but the, the response in the lectionary isn't. Uh, can you find the response as well as, as well as write the music? And I, you know, in my usual fashion, said, yes, of course I'll do that, you know. But, like, <laughs> arrogant I now realize and certainly complacent at that, at that time in my life I was um, writing a lot of music for the past five years everything I had done had been commissioned by somebody and the juices were flowing well and you know and I thought well, there's plenty of time to do this so so I said yes um, so that was uh, April 1984 well by December 1984 nothing had happened and uh, January 1985, still nothing. And now we're, now we're into February, and on the, um, I think the uh, 16th of February is the ordination, and the night before, on the 15th, they're going to have a music rehearsal, and uh, the um, choir was going to be directed by Christopher Walker, and Bernadette Farrell was going to be the cantor, and she was actually going to cantor this psalm, and everybody who was anybody in England in liturgical music was going to be there except me, because I had agreed a long time previously to do a, a, a cantor's course in another diocese, so I, I wasn't going to be at the ordination. But I knew they were having this rehearsal on the 15th. And I knew that, um, you know, a couple of days before that, he would need the melody line to put into the worship aid and all that kind of stuff. So on the uh, 10th of February, which is, you know, five or six days beforehand, I was getting pretty desperate, and I did not know what to do. Well, what I actually did was stay up all night and pray about it. I mean, it sounds very easy, it was something that hadn't struck me, so I, I stayed up all night and I prayed about it, 
And at six o'clock in the morning, I had an idea. And that idea was the, the wording for the response. And um, the words and the music came together. And that was like the key which opens the door. And um, so by nine o'clock in the morning, it was, it was all finished. Um, I'd written the whole thing. And by one o'clock lunchtime, um, I had copied it all out neatly because this is before the days of computers. Um, I was just starting uh, to learn computers in those days. And uh, then it was in the mail, and it arrived just in time for, um, just in time for to go to the worship aid and for the rehearsal and everything else. And and that taught me a, a terrible lesson which I needed to learn and which I hadn't learned up to that point as a composer. Uh, it's that you know you think you're in charge, you think you're in control, and actually you have to let go, and you have to let God use you as a channel. Um, and uh, so I, I think it's a little bit like, I mean, friends of mine who are alcoholics, you know, or they may have been dry for years, but uh, tell me that you need to bottom out before you can get help, before you can actually start to, to come back. And I think it was a bit like that for me. I made myself totally vulnerable before God, and God answered my prayer. And that's happened to me, you know, on a number of occasions since then. Um, to the point where sometimes I feel slightly guilty about relying on the fact that God is going to, going to get me out of a difficult situation. So when people say to me, um, I love your music, and I say, it's not my music, it, I really believe that in this case it wasn't. It was God's music. And so I say to people, if, you know, it's not my music, it's God's music. If it helps you to pray, it's your music. If it helps your people to pray, it's their music. Um, so it all came about through that um, chance, a conversation with a seminarian friend of mine. Now, over the course of our podcast, we've spoken to several composers who um, have written songs for a particular occasion or because they were asked to. So Paul just spoke about how he wrote this psalm setting for an ordination. Uh, Dan Schutte spoke about Here I Am, Lord, and how that also was written for a friend for his ordination celebration. And it occurs to me that, you know, any type of creativity causes pressure. But when you're writing something for a commission, there must be a unique pressure to that. Um, Zach, I don't know what you think about that as a composer. Well, I think there are probably a couple interesting considerations when you are commissioned to write. Of course, you want to fulfill the expectations, you know, the technical uh, requests. Like, we want this kind of song for this specific uh, situation and we want people to react in this way you know like you know the laundry list will go on of what people are hoping to get out of a commission I think in speaking to other composers about this it's it's often in a way easier when you're given a set of parameters uh, rather than facing uh, just a blank page when uh, the entire musical and textual universe is at your at your fingertips, it's it's it, that can be quite daunting. Um, but when you're kind of narrowed in, that can often uh, breed a different kind of innovation. But I think maybe what's more interesting to me about the notion of a commission is just this idea that people have listened to your music and have now associated a certain sound or like a certain thing about it. 
And then how it is that you fulfill that order, how it is that, um, you know, you still try to grow creatively while at the same time fulfilling the expectations of what it was that the people first heard and fell in love with concerning concerning your music and style. Yeah, and I think that that speaks to this type of pressure that that I'm intuiting or identifying here. You you have certainly the um, the pressure to produce something or compose something rather for this occasion that's appropriate. You also have then the pressure um, to to write something you're proud of, but also that meets the expectations of, of sound. I mean, they, they chose you as a composer for a reason. And then the third pressure point seems to be the community itself. You're writing something for a specific community, and they have you know, their own preferences, their own abilities, their own ensembles. And that seems to be really difficult, especially when you consider writing something that might be sung for generations to come. Yeah, I think oftentimes those uh, considerations, too, can give birth to uh, ideas and creativity that might never have happened before. Um, an example I can think of just right off the top of my head here is um, Marty Haugen's piece, uh, Soli Deo Gloria. Huge choral arrangement, a lot of orchestration to it. I think if you are someone who really knows Marty uh, because of songs like Gather Us In, All Are Welcome, um, maybe Eye Is Not Seen, uh, you might not uh, immediately suspect upon hearing Soli Deo Gloria that Marty Haugen was the composer of it, but I think that's an example of when the considerations of a, of a commission can you know, give license to and maybe uh, urge uh, composers toward trying new things. And circling back to this topic of compositional considerations, when we spoke with Paul, he shared with us some of his approaches to crafting harmony and melody. In general, I would say that I try when I write music to avoid the predictable, to avoid the banal. I think if, if you don't have that slightly original twist in things that you write, um, it's, uh, it's probably not worth doing. I mean, that sounds very harsh. Um, I mean, there are composers, and we know who they are, who tend to write the same thing over and over again. And and uh, I've always tried very hard not to do that and to have, you know, a slight... I think that, okay, you can be a channel for God's grace, you can be a conduit, you can use your um, musical talents and skills, but you still need to... Um, put a little bit of yourself in somewhere, and so the um, so the unexpected chord at the end of, of, of the response is 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 something that you know would be fairly typical of of the kind of things that I do. Um, and the uh, as far as the far as the verses are concerned, I think they're f they're fairly straightforward on the whole. But it's it's that little little thing at the end of the refrain where instead of going back to E flat, it goes to C major, uh, and it makes you sit up. Um, you know, and I think that's something that that, that happens in, in, in good liturgy too, that, um, uh, you know, when you're listening to a lector reading, you know, the angel said, and you think, ah, what did the angel say of the, the way that the reader does? It makes you sit up, open your ears. Uh, this, this has the same kind of thing. People don't go to sleep. It's funny how when you are studying composition, you learn 
all sorts of rules. And I think in liturgical composition, uh, in some ways we have even more rules. Uh, so it always fascinates me to see when a song works that breaks some of the rules. We've had uh, a couple instances of this. Of course, I think of our very first podcast episode on, on Eagle's Wings, how the verse starts on a non-chord tone. It starts on um, the C sharp over a G major chord. Center of My Life uh, also does some of this where it places non-chord tones on strong beats. Uh, I think what's particularly interesting about this is that even though these chords don't exist uh, or these notes don't exist in the chords, um, the assembly still finds this, in my experience, to be to be very uh, singable. One of the eternal struggles for liturgical composers, I think, is the desire to write musically interesting songs, but to also stay within the parameters of accessibility and singability for a musically untrained assembly. And I think one of the tools that uh, composers use to maintain interest is harmonization. I, we've talked about this in other songs and other episodes, but I think this is a good uh, illustration of how uh, this can be done to great effect. In the refrain of Center of My Life, the range um, is very manageable. Uh, the use of sequence and uh, the phrase structure here, I think, lends itself to some predictability, which makes it um, immediately singable and accessible to an assembly. But uh, I think where the interest lies in the harmonization is this uh, relationship between our home key of e, e flat major and then this C major chord that Paul sprinkles in in both the refrain and the verses. In the biz, we would call this immediate relationship because uh, C major is built off of the sixth scale degree uh, in the key of E flat major. I guess to be really technical, it's a submediant relationship. But uh, the C also comes after an A flat chord which is a third away, so we could call it immediate relationship between there. I think if you listen to, you know, you often hear that kind of uh, relationship uh, in a lot of uh, sci-fi movie scores. And, um, you know, it's also uh, used a great deal by um, many of the late Romantic composers. And, of course, uh, you see it a lot in the music of Beethoven and Brahms. But um, I think what is interesting here is not only that it's an interesting harmonization, but the fact that the C major chord in the refrain happens on the words life and sight. And I think it just draws our interest, um, you know, to, you know, the meaning of maybe something new. Uh, and it, it actually serves uh, the purpose of maintaining musical interest, but also uh, painting the text. One of the other features of Paul's choral writing that I find interesting here is his use of what we would call contrary motion in the harmony. So when you have one voice ascending and another voice descending at the same time, and it on the page, it, it actually looks like the harmonies. I'm, I'm speaking primarily of the interplay between the soprano and the tenor line. Uh, they create a mirror image of each other. And while it is a compositional tool used in a lot of choral writing, 
Here, it actually also, again, serves the purpose of text painting because it creates a feeling and also just a very uh, visual uh, symbol of symmetry, again, speaking to this idea of the center. When Zach and I first interviewed Paul back in July of 2017, we were excited to speak with him about this song, but also about a variety of other topics. Um, one of which was what it's like to be a composer as a part of a group. Certainly we've spoken to composers before that have an association or collaboration, but Paul has had two really interesting and very different experiences working with other composers. The St. Thomas More Group was a very loose association of people who actually um, came together because I was running the music side of the St. Thomas More um, Pastoral Liturgy Centre in London at the time, and they had all these people around the country who were doing self-publishing, and I pulled them all together and said, why don't we use the Thomas More Centre as a distribution point, and that's how that all began back in the 1970s. Um, and we used to meet together, we used to uh, critique each other's compositions and, uh, you know, th there wouldn't be blood on the floor, but we would, you know, we would learn a lot from what each other uh, were doing, all that kind of stuff. But um, uh, each composer brought whatever they brought to the, to the, to the mix. The Collegeville Composers Group is completely different. Um, it's, and it's been a unique experience for me and a fascinating experience because five composers and now six of us sit sit round a table and write music together. We do Lexio Divina on the texts of the day and then from that comes the, the words and the music of the, the antiphon and the psalm that we happen to be setting. And, you know, since then we've done a you know, complete mass setting. We've done music for RCIA. The latest collection is um, bilingual music for weddings and funerals. Um, and that was f even more fascinating because we were working in two languages simultaneously with six people around a table. I mean, can you imagine? So it's not somebody uh, comes to the, the table and says, look what I did. We all do it together. Somebody has an idea. Somebody else um, says, well, now, supposing we put this on the end of it, or supposing we change the text slightly, and, oh, and here's a descant which would fit, and all that kind of stuff. And so it's an organic um, growth uh, process um, where everybody is feeding in and nobody has a greater role than any other. Um, so you have to leave your egos at the door um, and it's very intense and you can't do it for more than three or four days at a time without driving each other crazy. But at the same time you have to learn to love each other in order to do it. So that's a, a completely different phenomenon from you know composers who just happen to be part of a grouping. This is um, you know actually writing music integrally um, uh, in in the group, not not bringing stuff to the group. I think you you learn some of the lessons. You you it's you're constantly broadening how other people um, think, how other people react to things. I've always been a composer who tries to start where people are and um, get under their skin and see what makes them tick, and then take them on a journey. We have a we we have something called called um, radio. We have radios one, two, three, and four on BBC National Radio. And radio three is the high class sort of um, classical music station, and radio four is a news uh, and uh, current events station, which has dramas and things like that. Radio one is the light music station, and I often s try and start by thinking about you know what 
um, uh, what a Radio 1 listener would expect when they come to church and and starting from that expectation and then trying to transform it and, and, and take them into something else. And the College of Composers is a fascinating group um, because um, you've got people who came through the chant tradition, you've got former rock musicians who are in it together, you've got um, men, you've got women, you've got ordained people, you've got non-ordained people. Now we have Anna Betancourt, who is our, you know, our, the Spanish member of the group. Um, and it's a great richness. And so w- what that has brought to me is, a, is an opening my mind to other things that, that, uh, that I might not have thought of before. And the second topic we really wanted to discuss with Paul was the trajectory of liturgical music following the Second Vatican Council in the United Kingdom. So far in this podcast, we've spoken to many composers, all of whom have written post-Vatican II, but all of them have been American. And we wanted to find out from Paul, someone who, who travels a lot between the U.S. and the U.K., who's worked with both congregations, um, what was it like in the U.K.? Was there, was there similarities, differences to the United States, some of his observations about differences between congregations? And so we were able to gain his insight and his expertise in our conversation. It's um, it, it's fair to say that that, that we've had a, a lot of the same kind of phenomena as you've had, not necessarily in the same sequence. So that, you know, we 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 went through a, a period where there was no repertoire, so people borrowed Protestant hymns um, and and started singing those in church. We you know people assumed that that, that church music was about. Um, uh, choirs and organs and and cantors we, we we measured heavily on the role of the cantor in the late 1960s and early 1970s then what we called folk music came along it had existed before that it was called gospel songs before that and then um, but in by you know the mid 1970s that was firmly in place by the end of the 1970s the charismatic renewal um, had made its itself felt and people were moving away from um, sort of rather vanilla texts towards things which were more biblically based. So we've been through the same kind of history, and I think you know addressing the same kind of pastoral problems and trying to find the same kind of pastoral solutions. Um, I've been coming over here on a regular basis since 1984, and having a foot you know in both camps on both sides of the Atlantic, and having lived in Southern California for a number of years, um, uh, it's it's easy to see that that, um, that that the English Catholic Church and the American Catholic Church are very similar in in a, in a lot of respects. In some other respects, they're different. The major respect would be money. I think there is no money in um, in the English Catholic Church because they're all descended um, ultimately from or most mostly from uh, people who came over from Ireland during the potato famines and didn't have any money, and so um, the, the church grew up in a in a different way. Uh, with a different attitude to, to spending in 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 the UK, you would say that the church puts money into things. Uh, in the USA, I would say that the church puts money in, in not only into things but into people. Uh, I think that's very important. I think the assemblies are the same. Um, I think that the, uh, um, the 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 way of of 
unlocking, if you like, what's the potential within assemblies is is a little different. In England, we we um, were influenced by uh, those in, in, in France and other European countries where the role of Cantor was um, established before we actually began to do anything like that, particularly France. Um, in this country, there are a lot of Cantors, and I've said, you know, in various places in the past that a, a lot of them have a lot of good training musically, vocally, biblically. Um, uh, they, they know about liturgy. The one thing um, that they didn't have, and I think that's now changing, um, but there is at least a whole generation of American cantors who were never given any training in how to elicit a response from the assembly. Um, that, that has now changed, thank goodness. Um, so I used to find myself going around this country doing workshops, remedial counter training, um, sort of uh, um, as a, as a sideline. I would be presenting repertoire music and people would say, how do you get people to sing this? And then I would say, well, this is how you get people to sing it. And I would end up doing, as I say, remedial counter training um, for, the, for the people who were there. Um, so we tend to use gesture differently um, from the way that you use it in this country. Um, and we tend to talk to the assembly in a different way from the way that you... Um, but the assemblies are the same, I think, and that's why I can stand up in front of an American assembly and I can do the same kind of thing that I can do uh, in England or I can do in France because I happen to be bilingual in French, which is very useful. Um, and uh, I, th I think people the world over, they want to pray, they want to sing. And it's our, it's our job to, to help them to do that. And now, here is a recording of Center of My Life in its entirety. Center. 
Thank you for listening to the Open Your Hymnal podcast. Center of My Life is published by OCP. The recording you just heard was released by OCP. Links to this material and other resources can be found at our website, openyourhymnal.com. We'd like to specially thank Paul Inwood for this interview. Production assistance and support was provided by OCP and by Stephen Petronak and the National Association of Pastoral Musicians. You can find important digital resources for music ministry at NPM's website, www.npm.org. If you aren't a member yet, sign up today. Be sure to follow Open Your Hymnal on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you haven't yet, you can subscribe to this podcast through iTunes and through Google Play. Our next episode will feature an interview with composers Rory Cooney and Gary Daigle and their song, Covenant Hymn. Wherever you go, I will follow. For Open Your Hymnal, I'm Zach Stahowski. And I'm Matt Reichert. Thanks for listening.